0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. We're going to read uh, this incident here of the rich young ruler, and then after that, we will turn to Romans 1 and read our passage for the day. Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 18. Hear God's word. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure In heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we pause this morning before our time with Your Word open before us, recognizing that we are in very great need of You, recognizing that all too often throughout our week we go about our business and make up our own minds according to our own strength, according to our own wisdom. But when we come to this time we have your word open before us and we recognize that our wisdom is as nothing compared to yours that that your wisdom all too often seems like foolishness and yet it is the wisdom of God. And so we humble ourselves before your word. Recognizing our great need for you. Recognizing The truth of this passage, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we who are in Christ are in Christ and have peace with you because of your mighty working in the gospel in saving us. Father, in these next few minutes, I pray that you would help us to engage with this text Help us to engage with the gospel that this text points us to. Help us ultimately to engage with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are taking a break uh, for just this week uh, because uh, though we've been going through Genesis and we will return to Genesis, this is um, a special time of the year. This would be Uh, The Reformation time of the year, we in Nevada are uh, doubly blessed because uh, not only do we have Nevada Day on the 31st, though it's observed at some different time, though we have Nevada Day on the 31st, much more importantly than that, we have Reformation Sunday. And so that is the same day of the year, October 31st. And so it would be uh, right for us to uh, pause from what we've been looking at to focus in on Those topics that were brought to the fore in uh, the Reformation time that uh, gives rise to uh, Protestantism. And we, though we don't have Protestant in the name of our church, uh, though we don't perhaps often talk about what it means to be Protestant, we will do so today. Okay, And we're going to talk about what the Reformation was about, and we want to uh, commemorate this time a little bit because it's important for us. It's not just... Dusty history. It's not just something that happened uh, lo these 500 years ago. It is extremely, extremely important. And so uh, we're going to uh, take a pause from our regular uh, journey through Genesis and look at uh, this topic of the Protestant Reformation, and particularly as it uh, reveals to us the gospel. And so it's important for us to remember a little bit of uh, history as we talk about uh, as we talk about this topic. That in the reason we celebrate Reformation Day on October 31st is because on October 31st in 1517, a uh, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed uh, 95 topics for debate, which was the way you did things back then. Nailed it to the door at Wittenberg, and uh, he and the other monks and whatnot were going to debate these different topics. And uh, when that happened, it uh, started an avalanche of reformation that uh, we still see the effects of and, and, uh, and get to see the benefits of even 500 years later. And so it's, it's important for us to remember uh, where we've come from and why we emphasize some of the things we do and why uh, we, we want to be wary about certain things. See, uh, I said Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was Roman Catholic, and pretty much everybody was Roman Catholic, if you were Christian at all, uh, during that time. And, and, um, and, and Luther was very serious about his faith, very serious. He was very aware of uh, God's righteousness, of God's holiness, and he, was, he, 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 he held God in awe because of that. And at the same time, he was very aware of his own sin, and he sought to be reconciled to God. He sought to have his sin dealt with, but the way it was explained to him and the way he understood uh, for him to deal with his sin had a lot to do with his own penance and his own confession and his own uh, system of working through these Uh, sins and confessing them, etc., so that he might ultimately be righteous enough to be in God's presence, to be acceptable to God. Without going into too great a detail about how the uh, medieval Roman Catholic Church understood the gospel, I want to give you a a very basic distinction for us that's very, very important. That essentially, when a child was born and born into uh, one of these Roman Catholic nations and, and families, they would be baptized. And, and basically, at that moment of baptism, that child was saved, was justified, declared to be righteous before God. Their sin having been done away, declared righteous before God. Right? It's a great starting point. But then, what happens when your child grows up? Any parent, any grandparent, any person knows that as the child grows up, the child sins at some point, and then their sin is not just a, a light thing. It, it gets deeper and deeper, and, and, uh, and you begin to see the full sinfulness of this child. And that's not just because that's a bad kid. That's not just one bad apple out of, the, out of the bunch, that's really all of us. And for any of us who have children, we've seen that in our children, in each one. And so what happens is, though they started out justified, when, when they commit a, a sin, and particularly when they commit a mortal sin, a sin that's bad enough, they fall out of justification. They're no longer rightly related to God. And now, in order for them to get back into God's good graces, they need to work the system. They need to do what the Catholic Church uh, tells them to do, and that involves penance, that involves confession, that, involve, uh, that involves uh, certain types of prayer and other things like that, that was basically a means of working your way back up into God's good graces. Because though you were declared that way when you were born, you lost it as soon as you sin. Then you have to work your way back up into it. You have to be sanctified, you have to be growing in your sanctification. To such a point where you finally achieve that level where, where you are sanctified enough that you can be acceptable to God. And at that point, He would declare you justified. You see, you, you climbed up the hill. You, you, you pulled yourself up. You, you did uh, what the church told you to do. You, you, you worked your way out of it to where you got back to a point where now you were once again acceptable to God. And at that point where you made the cut, you were declared to be righteous. You were justified. So you see that? That, that you, you begin with sanctification, and once you've been sanctified enough, then you can be declared just. There are some problems with that. Setting aside, biblical argument, which we're going to get to momentarily, but setting aside that, how would you ever know that you had climbed the ladder high enough? How would you ever know that you had crested that hill, that you had arrived, that you had, had been sanctified enough that you could be justified before God? You couldn't. So what would that do to you? Well, what would that do to your Christian life? You would always be running, always be working, always be climbing, always be seeking to grow in all of these ways because it's out of desperation, because you desperately want to be justified and you don't know if you're there yet. And so you, you would live a life with with, yeah, this distant kind of hope, but in reality, it's, it's stress. It's distress. In reality, you're, you're, you're recognizing your own lostness. And that, that hope of justification is so far out there and it's so unattainable and you never know when you get there anyway that you would live your life knowing that you had God's disfavor Hoping that one day possibly, maybe, if you did enough, if you worked the system well enough, possibly, maybe, you might ultimately have God's favor and you'd be justified. But you live your life in this in this place of of, of work and and stress and, and really fear. And that's where Luther found himself. And Luther took acceptance with God very seriously. And Luther took his own sin very seriously. This wasn't a guy who, um, you know, would just brush off his sin. No, his his confessor uh, was was frustrated with Brother Martin because Brother Martin would spend hours in the confessional talking his confessor's ear off, confessing every little sin. That when he looked over at, uh, you know, at Brother Heinrich and his uh, his porridge in the morning, that he 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 envied that porridge. He envied Brother Heinrich. And he's, he would, he's taking all this time because he took sin seriously. He wanted to be made right with God. And what did he find as he was doing this? No one was better at doing it than him. No one was more committed to doing it than him. In fact, his, his confessors and those around him thought that he took it a little bit too seriously. That you, you need to relax a little bit. You need to take it easy, Brother Martin. You need to uh, not take this so seriously. But he took it to heart and it drove him nearly crazy. It drove him to a point where, where he was so frustrated with God's holiness that when he would read Scripture and he would read uh, David, for example, talking about, uh, I'd love your righteousness, he thought David was crazy. Because in Martin's mind, the righteousness of God meant judgment for the guilty. That is, Brother Martin, he knew where he stood in this whole mess. And so, that's the gospel as it was, as it was preached it was, that's the gospel as he understood it, and he was very well educated. He was, he was a doctor in the church. He wasn't just some guy. He knew what the church taught, and he believed what the church taught, and it, it depressed him no end. That's, the, that's essentially the gospel that, that was proclaimed to him, the gospel that he was raised with, that he was taught to believe, and that he... Uh, himself taught. You can see, and some of you can remember what that's like. Some of you have been in that system. Some of us, uh, though we've not been raised, particularly in a church, that teaches such a thing, we have that kind of view of God that of course we must dust ourselves off. We must clean ourselves up, right? To come into God's presence, right? That's got to be the way it is. That only makes sense. And we've uh, I, I've told before of sharing the gospel with various people. That's their response. You invite them to church. You share the gospel. You, you, you'd, you'd point them to Christ. And, and what's their response? Well, someday when I clean my life up, maybe I'll do that. And you just want to pull your hair out. Because, because they, they won't clean their life up enough. And that's not the gospel that the Bible presents anyway. So the, the, the gospel that Luther had been taught was hopeless. And it led to all kinds of problems in the church. It led to a lot of power. If, if those who have the ability to tell you whether you've been justified or not are the church, and you're always working, always working, that would make you subservient to the church. That would make the church the Lord over you. It led to all manner of problems, and Luther experienced every one of, those problems. But fortunately for Luther and fortunately for you and me, that explanation of the gospel is not what the Bible teaches us. That is no gospel at all. To to put it briefly, whereas whereas in in the, the medieval Roman Catholic conception of the gospel, you needed to be sanctified in order that someday you might be justified before God, hopefully. In contrast to that, what Luther discovered in our passage today, and this is why we celebrate uh, Reformation Day, and this is why we're preaching on this topic, What, what Luther discovered in this passage, which was there all along, but had been concealed for about a thousand years, what is revealed in Scripture is that The way we come to God, the way we are declared right with God, is not by working the system and finally attaining to a point where we've gotten our lives together enough that we can be acceptable to God. Instead, it is by faith that we are declared to be justified before God. By faith, we who are sinful come into right standing with God by faith in Jesus Christ in His life and His death for us, so that we are declared to be righteous. We are justified initially. That's the entrance in to the Christian life. And then from there, God works by His Holy Spirit to sanctify us so that we see an actual change in lifestyle, so that we begin to grow in certain ways. We begin to see that uh, the sins that we used to do, God is at work in us now. We hate those sins And there's actual practical change in our lives. You see, justification comes first, and then sanctification. And the motivation for sanctification under under the old system that Luther experienced and that so many of us have experienced, the motivation is is a desire, a, a desperation seeking God's favor that motivates our work. Is there any rest in there? If you have a relationship, and probably... Uh, we can we can think of relationships that we might have in our lives where someone is just never satisfied, and, and we really want that person's satisfaction, and so we're always trying to do the thing, we're always trying to be better, we're always trying to say the right thing or make sure we don't say the wrong thing. You, are you easy around that person? Are you are you comfortable with that person? Are you do you ever feel any kind of true experience of that person's love for you? No. You're always desperate. You're always on edge. You're, you're never at rest. Well, that's, that's what happens with this gospel that was proclaimed in, uh, in Luther's day. But on the other hand, on the other hand, what, what Luther discovered and what we really are going to get to in just a moment is that when we are justified, we are declared to be just before God by faith alone in Christ alone. We have acceptance with God. He is our Father. We have been reconciled to Him. We have peace with God. We've been justified already. Now how do we obey God? Now how do we seek this sanctification? How do we seek life change? Why do we? What's our motivation? It's it's a motivation that's rooted in an existing acceptance with God. He is my Father. And so I want to obey Him. And so I battle the sins and I and I do the things. And but you see the difference in those two mentalities and the motivations of those two things. One is desperation, hoping that someday, possibly, maybe, I could climb that hill and have God as my father. And, and the, the the nervousness and the, the the lack of rest and the discomfort that's in that situation, in contrast to, by faith in Christ, I am made a child of God and I have his favor. And I am made to be at peace with Him. And now, when I look at a life before me and I have sin, I I, I hate that sin. I want to deal with it. I want to put it away. Why? So that I can have God's favor? No, because I have God's favor. Because I am His child by grace through faith in Christ. You see the huge distinction between those two things. Well, Luther... Didn't put those truths in the Bible, of course, but he uncovered them, and they had been buried for a thousand years. And it was this passage in Romans chapter 1 that that first began to shine that light, that first began to help Luther understand what was wrong with what he had been taught What was wrong with what he believed about how a sinful person can be made right with God? That he came to see the gospel in this passage right here. And then as soon as he did, it changed everything. It changed the world. So that we now go to a Protestant church. We proclaim the gospel as as Luther first uncovered it and saw it there in that day. And so we look to Romans Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, a very uh, famous passage. It's one that's very well known to us. And I'll read it again for us and we'll work through our outline briefly here. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, we've preached through this, we're familiar with this, but Paul himself says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." See, he wanted to go there and preach. He wanted to go to Rome and preach to them. He was under obligation to preach to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and the foolish. He was eager to go to Rome and preach, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and here's the real key, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We want to look at, firstly, the humbling of the gospel reforms. The humbling. The, he, he says here that he is tempted to be shamed, or, or he recognizes that some might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Why is that? Why would anyone, uh, anyone be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel itself? Well, first, in order to understand that, we need to know uh, what the gospel is. And So let's define it very briefly. Of course, we're looking at Romans, and one of the grand themes of Romans is the gospel. It's a word that we use a lot. You'll see it on a lot of things in Christian circles. It's in a lot of conversation, but it's very often misunderstood, It certainly was misunderstood in Luther's days. The gospel itself answers some very basic questions. For example, how can sinful man have the sort of righteousness that pleases a holy God? Recognizing the sinfulness of man, which Luther did and which hopefully you and I do, and and Paul's going to get to in Romans chapter 3 very, very clearly, recognizing the sinful man, the, the, the sinfulness of man, How can he have the sort of righteousness that pleases a holy God? You've got to answer that question. Well, if we answer that question saying that God justifies the believer by faith, right? It's by faith that God justifies the believer. Good. That's an excellent answer. That's exactly the right answer. But that raises another question. How can God justify the unrighteous and himself still be righteous? A righteous judge can't ignore laws being broken all over the place and still be a righteous judge. He can't just wink at law-breaking. So, how can God remain righteous if He is pardoning people who are clearly guilty? Well, the answer to those questions is all found in the gospel. The gospel tells us that For those who believe, Christ's death becomes our death. And Christ's life of righteousness and and obedience to God becomes our life of righteousness and obedience to God. That Christ Himself has met the requirements of God, that God who is righteous, remember Luther feared God, but God, who is righteous with all of His requirements of perfect and personal and perpetual obedience that I've failed at again and again and could never meet up to you either, yet Jesus did meet that standard. And the penalty that you and I owe because of our not having met that standard, He went and paid. And so, he who had righteousness because of His life of righteousness. And He who had uh, paid that penalty for sin that was not His own, He gives that to us, credits it to us by faith alone. When we look to Him, when we trust in Him, and thus we are declared righteous before God, not because we have become righteous, not because we've done enough of the good deeds or any of those things, but by declaration from Him because Jesus has done it and it is credited to us By faith alone. That's the gospel. That God's standard of righteousness is met because Jesus has met it. And it is met for us because we are included in Christ by faith. Well, how could that be a shaming thing? That's a wonderful message. We all in here are rejoicing over that. How could that be a shameful thing? Why would anyone possibly be tempted? Here's why. Because of where it puts us in the paradigm. Where it puts us in the system. See, we, we were not able to climb a ladder because of our sin. Not only did we start at a deficit, but we don't even have the power within ourselves to make it up to God in any way. You see, in this, in this whole picture, we are the, the helpless ones, we are the rebellious ones, the sinful ones who need to be rescued who must have God Himself do that work for us. And that is humbling. That is humbling for us to be right there at the bottom of the page with God doing the rescuing. And if we're honest, we think about ourselves, we think about our own life. I mean, we, we, we don't like to be the helpless one in the story. We don't like to be the rebellious one in the story. We don't like to be the one who, who, who must be rescued or or he won't live. And yet that's where we are in that story. But then think about when you share the gospel with your neighbor. You're sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't already believe this. Where are they in the paradigm? Where are they in this explanation? Where are they in the page? They, they must come to understand that they are needy. That they are rebellious before God. That they're sinful. That they can't climb any ladder. That they can't brush themselves off. They can't get their act together enough to please God. That's the starting point. They have to understand that. Now, the way we go about explaining that is important. Right? We, don't, we don't want to you know, come at people and, and uh, point the finger at them. and you know, You're a sinner and you just need to repent. Well, it is true that they're a sinner and it is true that they need to repent. But that's probably not the best evangelistic method. But you do want them to come to understand that they are sinful that they need to repent. Come to understand that they're in that position of utter need. And so, how could it be even possible for the gospel to be shaming? Because of where it puts us. And, and we who are in Christ, we who who have read the Bible and we, we know enough about ourselves, we realize that's where we are, is in that place of need. But all too often, when we go to share the gospel with someone, we have someone in our lives who... Uh, is um, not a believer and we're trying to share with them, they're so much like that, that rich young ruler, aren't they? The question that he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. There's a better question. How can I inherit eternal life? <laughs> but his, he came at it, what must I do? So Jesus, first of all, challenged him on why do you call me good? He had called Jesus good teacher. Uh, no one is good but God alone, so Jesus was pushing a button there. But what, was, what, what, what did Jesus say to him? So you asked what you can do. Here are the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't lie, right, and, and don't steal. right. So he, he honor your father and mother. He lays out the commandments, and, and if we're honest, we've broken those commandments. But what does the rich young ruler say? Okay, great. I got that list down. What else you got, Jesus? I mean, we're halfway there. I asked you, how, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, I've got more than a passing grade already, so Jesus sees that. Jesus, of course, knows this man is sinful in all of those ways. It's not that Jesus uh, thinks that this man has actually honored his father and mother all of his life as he ought to. Jesus knows what is true about this man. It's the man who's ignorant of those things. But Jesus gets right to the heart. And he says, well, there's one thing you lack. Sell all that you have, give to the poor. Jesus points to that one thing where the man sure looked good in this way, and he sure looked good in that way. He had a pretty good record here and there. But Jesus Jesus is saying, you have a greedy, selfish heart. That you say you love your neighbor as yourself, but you're not even willing to sell your stuff to help your neighbor? Jesus is exposing his sin, and what happens to the man? We read it earlier. He goes away sad because he had such wealth. He, he, didn't, he didn't go away rejoicing that, wow, I can help that person. No, he, he, even, even recognizing that Jesus uh, is answering his question about how to inherit eternal life, he still goes away sad because he's got all this stuff and he's not willing to get rid of it. And that's how, that's how we are in the flesh. And that's how when the gospel came to me, and I, you know, I, I was an 18-year-old kid and, and I was told I was a sinner. And I was like, well, what, what do you mean I'm a sinner? Well, any mature reflection would have revealed to me the same thing that it would reveal to you that I'm a sinner and so are you. But that is humbling. Humbling. And so what's our point of application here? Well, we need to be humbled. And so let the true, the true saving gospel of Christ humble you before Holy God. Let it humble you. When Scripture tells you what you're like, believe it. Don't rail against it, don't struggle against it. We need to come to grips with the truth about ourselves, what we truly deserve and and that we have nothing to contribute that's what we need to come to grips with and so the humbling effect of the gospel is reforming to us secondly the power of the gospel reforms he continues on he said i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes and we've seen elsewhere in Scripture the power of God at work. You think about creation. We're going through Genesis. You think of creation and God speaking things into existence. He didn't even break a sweat. He spoke and it was. Or then you think about the, the duel with, with Pharaoh in the Exodus and those great plagues that went on, and the power that was displayed, and the parting of the Red Sea, and all that went on there. We 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 see pictures of the power of God at work in Scripture. And Paul says when we're talking about salvation itself, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That kind of power, that kind of, of might and, and and wondrous ability brought to bear in the conversion of a soul, the salvation of a sinner. requires God's power. Why is that? If, if salvation were merely a change of allegiance, well, persuasion will do that. If salvation were about joining a new club, well, we can talk one another into that. We could, we could perhaps include enticements, inducements to get a person to join your club. But that's not what salvation is. It's not about joining something. It's not about that kind of uh, a change of allegiance. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 1 and go to Ephesians chapter 2. The power of God is required in salvation. And here's why just like in creation, when no created thing existed and then God spoke into existence, created things. So it is very similar with salvation. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not sick, not suffering, not struggling, not a little behind the curve, not under the weather, not almost dead, but dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Folks, don't we see ourselves in that passage? I recognize myself in those verses. And, and Paul describes me in that verse as being dead. Now, I was walking around. I was talking to people. I was interacting. I wasn't physically dead. But when he says dead here, he means incapable and unwilling to respond positively to God. Dead. So he starts off in verse 1. He says, you were dead. And he goes on to elaborate on that. Verse 4, but God... You were dead. What are you going to contribute in your death? How are you going to climb out of that? You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why does it require the power of God for us to be saved? Why is it not just me talking you into it or or someone more persuasive persuading you that this thing is true or getting you to join a particular club or change allegiance? Why does it require the very power of God? It's because you were dead and had to be made alive. And that's why when we share the gospel with someone, we want to be persuasive. And we want to... We want to help them to see all that's going on and the benefits of what it means to be in Christ. We want them, we're we're trying to persuade them. We're trying to, we, we want them to believe and we express that. But ultimately, what does it take? It takes the power of God exercised in the heart of that person so that that dead person, dead in trespasses and sins, can be made alive. It took the power of God to create. The created order, it takes the power of God to take a dead person and make them alive in Christ. The power of the gospel is reforming, is changing. And it is God's power at work in it. Not the power of an idea. Not the power of a movement. Not the power of persuasion. It is the power of God At work. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How has that become ours? How are we connected with that? What's the instrument by which that's ours? Climbing some ladder? Working some system? Faith. It's faith. It's ours by faith in Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the application for us today is a command from God. The command from God for you and me today is to believe it for yourself. It's not enough to know these truths, to have certain knowledge. You must know these truths. You must know some things. But that's not enough. Salvation is not less than knowledge but it is more than knowledge. It's not just a knowledge, but it's a conviction that those things are true. Not just something you learn so you could pass a test, but these things are actually true and beyond that, trust is required. That I know those things, I believe they are true, I have that conviction and I trust in that Jesus to save me. As I enter right in, to that picture. I've used the illustration before, I won't take long on it now, but of a chair. If you were to envision a chair right here, and I could I could pull one out and, and lay it down there and sit it there and I could describe the chair and, and we could agree together that it looks sturdy enough. It looks uh, like it, it ought to be strong enough and, and, and designed well enough to hold me off the ground. and, and all, I, I know some things. It's a chair. It looks sturdy. It looks stout. I could even shake it and, and determine that, yes, indeed, it is good and strong, right? And none of those things are faith. It's not faith until I sit in the chair and pick my feet up, where I'm trusting only in that chair to hold me off the ground. That is faith. Observing that it is a chair is not Faith. Knowing that, uh, that it's a true and good chair, it's not, it's not designed to break, it's strong enough, is also not faith. It's not until I sit in it and trust it is it faith. And so it is with Jesus. The gospel is the power of God and it reforms lives. Finally, the righteousness of the gospel reforms. The righteousness of the gospel reforms. Verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther was scared to death of the righteousness of God. Because he knew he did not possess it. That he was on the opposite end of it. He was scared to death of God and his righteousness because he was aware of his own sin. But it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed in a saving way. As as the Father sends the Son, who is born of one of us, born as one of us. He's He's a man, and yet... Unlike me and unlike you, Jesus, when he grew up, he was always obedient. He was obedient from the heart to his parents, to all of God's law. Jesus himself lived a righteous life, literally like no one else has ever done or could, living righteously, perfectly, perpetually, and personally righteous in his life before God. Well, you and I haven't done that. So far, this isn't good news. But then, Jesus went to the cross, the place of punishment for sin, to be punished as a sinner, though not a sinner. To be punished as a sinner because I'm a sinner. So that He took upon Himself the punishment for sin, for my sin, for your sin. And God's righteous judgment was poured out upon that sin, upon Jesus Himself, the the, the full fury of the the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, dumped upon Jesus and expended for me. There There being no wrath left for me because it's expended in Christ. And when I trust in Christ, like this chair, when I put my faith in Him, that payment becomes my payment so that my sin is washed away. But it's better than that. Because I require uh, righteousness to be in God's presence. Not just a clean slate, but righteousness. And when I place my faith in Christ, when I am connected with Him by faith, I find that my sins are done away and I find that His righteousness is credited to my account. So that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. And Luther came to understand what, what, what I praise God that, that, that I and others have come to understand, and, and, and most of you as well, come to understand that the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, not by a life that finally climbed the ladder, a life that finally cleaned itself off enough that, that, that the goodness, the inner goodness can kind of show forth and God can give it the stamp of approval of justification. That we actually have become the righteousness of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. But he goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 and says, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are the very display of God's righteousness. Not because He gave us the perfect ladder to climb, but because Jesus climbed it for us and gives us the credit. So the righteousness of God is ours by faith alone, Christ alone. It's ours by grace alone. So, a couple of points of application. We need to keep living, even now with our eyes fixed on the gospel promises of our faithful God. Because we so often switch in our minds from the understanding that we have been made children of God by faith in Christ, we have been declared to be righteous with the full credit of Jesus' righteousness counted to us at the very beginning, and so we live out of that we live from a place of acceptance with God, and therefore we want to obey Him. We have a new heart. We have a, a desire to walk with Him. We, we forget that, and instead we see, ah, i just got this sin. And, and yes, you've got the sin. But we, we forget all of this, and we instead think, well, I guess i got to climb that hill if I ever want God to be pleased with me again. I guess I better do these things. I guess I better be at church regularly, and we want you to be at church regularly. I guess I better read my Bible more, and we want you to read your Bible more. I guess I better, I don't know, share the gospel, and we want you to share the gospel. I guess I better do these things. Why? Because I want to get back into God's good graces. We need to remember the truths that Luther uncovered in this passage right here about what it means that we are declared righteous before God. We are justified and we live from our justification, from that right relationship with God, and thus we are motivated to do all of those things, including fight sin, because we hate it. Why do we hate it? Because it's hateful to our God. It's hateful to our Father. This is the first point of application for us. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the truth of the gospel because the world will convince us otherwise. Our own flesh will convince us otherwise. We'll we'll place before us a ladder to climb, and may it never be. But there's a second point of application right here. What person is there in your life that needs to hear this? Needs to hear this truth. You have opportunity to share with them these truths. And, and we've talked about Halloween being an opportunity to pass out tracts, and, and, and I would encourage you to, to, to do that, and, and Stephen's talked about that. I would encourage you to have conversations over the back fence. Share the gospel where you can. But you have also the opportunity to invite those people to church. They're going to come here, and they're going to meet Christians, and they're going to hear the gospel proclaimed. They're going to hear the, the Bible proclaimed to them, explained to them, applied to their lives. And very, very importantly in there is the exposition, the explanation of the gospel itself. And so, you look around and you see, you see an empty seat next to you. You have opportunity to fill it. Invite somebody. Invite a family and bring them in. Well, this gospel message that we've looked at uh, briefly today is, uh, is really what kicked off the Protestant Reformation and and Luther was uh, deeply, deeply impacted by these truths. He, he says this about it. Talking about 1, 16 and 17 of Romans, Luther says this about when he came to understand finally. He, 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 he dusted off the, the gospel right here and the, the impact it had on him was like a lightning bolt. He said, I felt myself absolutely born again. The gates of paradise had been flung open and I had entered. There and then the whole of Scripture took on another look to me. Remember the Scripture that had pointed him to the righteousness of God that was so fearful, that was so frightening to him, that was so deadening to his faith, so deadening in his own life. Finally, in seeing here, seeing the righteousness of God revealed by faith, seeing that the righteous shall live by faith. That gave him life. That's when he was born again. It was, it was, it was a, an entirely new understanding of all of Scripture. And that's worth us celebrating today and it's certainly worth us remembering as we go forth. Because we get confused so easily. We, we need to be reminded regularly about the truth of the gospel, about how it is that we, sinful men and women, sinful boys and and girls can have peace with God. And it's accomplished for us by Christ and it is ours by faith. Let's remember that. Let's remind one another of that. And let's take that message which is a saving message, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Let's take that message to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed see ourselves at the bottom of the page. We see ourselves as those who had no capacity to resuscitate ourselves, being already dead, having nothing to contribute, nothing that we could do in order to make You love us, in order to make us acceptable to You. And it is good for us, and it is good for me to be reminded of that reality. And it is so good for us that Jesus, Your Son, lived perfectly, obediently in our stead and died on that cross in our stead to pay the penalty for our sins, to credit to us His righteousness so that we, by faith in Him, have life and peace with You. Father, I pray that You would Drive this truth of the gospel deep into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, into our relationships, and into our community. Encourage us with these words. Direct our eyes to you with these words and save sinners with these words. Even as it's been proclaimed this morning and as we take this gospel to the world around us, we pray that you would do this great work of making dead people alive in Christ. You have that power. And we pray that you would exercise it greatly. In Jesus' name, amen. There's going to be a family down front who would love to pray with you, and I'll be down front as well if you want to come talk to me. I would encourage you as well. We have evening service tonight at 6 o'clock. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.